<laughs> so great to see you all. It's great to be together, as always, on Resurrection Day, and uh, good to see your smiling faces. Hopefully you're good, and it's so exciting just to see with the kids checking in and the students and lots of life uh, in the place, which is good, and I, which the church should be, I think. Are you with me? I think it uh, should be filled with life. Um, excited about today. We had a fantastic week last week, actually. It was a long weekend, and one of the things you know around the community here is we don't uh, typically have gatherings here on Sunday mornings on the long weekend. We tend to take Sabbath in the summertime, just take rest, give you and your family rest. And then some long weekends of the year, we just try and mix it up. Thanksgiving, we do a big long table on the Friday night. And one of the things we've kind of kind of stumbled into on family day is just a great time in living rooms and around homes throughout the city. We have some pictures there of some of our gatherings uh, around the city. We had a great time just eating and celebrating. And so thanks for those of you that participated and a great way just to enact the kingdom. As the kingdom comes, one of the things we're called to is the table. And today is actually the final um, Sunday in a season in the church calendar called Epiphany. We've been wrestling and walking through these Epiphany teachings. And if you're new with us, basically what we've done is we've started a journey through the church calendar. We're just going to do it once, all the way from Advent in December, all the way through to Pentecost Sunday, which will come in June or late May, I think. And so we're super excited about just one time as a community walking through this ancient calendar together that Christians have practiced through uh, for a long, long time. And so Epiphany actually ends today, the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is the season of celebrating Jesus coming to us. And now after today, we're going to switch gears and we're going to head into this season that's probably familiar for many of you called Lent. And Lent is the 40-day season before Easter, kind of in preparation for Easter. And so one announcement in all of this is as we practice this, and as we kind of are attentive to the church calendar, one of the things we wanted to do is make you aware of some things and feasts and festivals that actually go along with the church calendar. And one of those things is called Ash Wednesday. This Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. And Christians have celebrated Ash Wednesday for a long time. And uh, maybe some of you have gone maybe to an Anglican church or a Catholic church and received ashes, this sign on the forehead of we've come from dust and now to dust we will return. And this has been a thing the church has been practicing for a while. And because we're observing the church calendar, we thought we want to do something on Ash Wednesday. And so we're not like super high church. I don't even know if I have authority to give ashes. I don't know how even that works. But... As a community like ours, we want to be attentive to it. And so what we're going to do is this, and we hope you can come, is on Wednesday, we've rented this room out. At 6 o'clock, all across the back, we're going to have a taco bar, free dinner for you. It's going to be amazing. And then after we eat together, I know it kind of goes against Lent. It's kind of counterintuitive. I know Lent is for fasting. We're going to eat together. Again, we're not that high church, okay? And, uh, and then we're going to have a time of prayer and worship in this room for about 45 minutes after dinner. Kids can come. There's going to be some things for the kids. And we're just going to have a great time busting this room out in kind of observing, observation of this day called Ash Wednesday as we prepare ourselves for Lent. And so we really hope you can join us. I'm actually going to give you permission now if you want. It's a free evening. Dinner is provided. You want to pull out your phone right now. Yes, I'm giving you permission in church to pull out your phone. Go to mypraxis.church 
slash Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and you can just hit your name in there, how many are coming, and you can join us for this evening. Um, Listen, we do not do like a ton of midweek stuff, like outside of our communities that meet in homes. We don't do a lot of events midweek, as you know. So we really hope you can join in. The band is going to be here. They're going to lead us. It's going to be an incredible evening together. Sound like a plan? So please join us and uh, let us know. We just need to know how much food we're going to buy. Sound good? You all right? Okay. Now that that's settled, it is the last Sunday of Epiphany, and the last Sunday of Epiphany is always known as something called Transfiguration Sunday. Whoa, Transfiguration Sunday. Just joking. All right. Um, and this is a day that the church has kind of leaned into every single year, and we're actually going to look this morning at the gospel text for Transfiguration Sunday as we kind of land this season of Epiphany. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, we're going to be in Matthew 17. You may want to flip on your phone or open your Bible up. Matthew chapter 17. While you're turning there and flipping your phone on, let me just remind you that most of us in this room are not first century Jews. So profound, eh? Maybe we should just pray on that one and go home. That's very, uh, very observant here, right? Seriously, though, I think one of the things we need to think through is that most of us in this room do not have Jewish roots, and obviously none of us are living in the first century. We live in the 21st century with our day jobs and our iPhones and Massey's Indian Buffet waiting on the other side of this gathering. Come on, somebody. And even though I'm on this like semi-keto diet, because I'm trying in my own strength to look like Tom Brady, Massey's has my heart, okay? So it may be cheat day. The problem with picking up the Bible a couple of thousand years later is that we often forget that the gospel of Matthew that we're gonna read here was written primarily to a first century Jewish audience. And that's just the truth. There's always this chasm that I feel like it needs to be said when we pick this stuff up, especially as Westerners. And with that, when we pick up Matthew, it is charged. I mean, it is lit up with Jewish imagery all over the place that would ultimately in that day work to gain the attention attention of that particular audience. As Matthew was compiled, it is literary genius how Matthew compiles it, but you can just sense and tell because of how much Old Testament reference there is that this was written for the Jewish community. So in the text here, I just want to forewarn you that we are going to hear about things like a mountain and a cloud. We're going to hear about guys like Moses and Elijah. We're going to hear about a bright light. And to you, you're probably thinking, I can't wait to get home, kick up my feet, and watch season three of Stranger Things because it is Sunday, right? Some of you are just like, you're here, but maybe not fully here. But to the audience that would pick this up in the first century, It would conjure all sorts of different things from their own history as a people and ultimately from the Old Testament. You okay? Make sense? I just feel like that, you know, I just always feel like this kind of needs to be put before us, especially when Western people kind of do what they do with the Bible. Have you ever watched like Christian TV? Anybody? Anybody? That was funny. Nobody laughed. Okay, tough, tough crowd. Sometimes you just, you hear stuff and you're like, what? I'm not sure that means what you think it means. So we have to take some of the contextual things really, really seriously and into consideration, especially if you're going to pick up and read Matthew. Now with that said, let's read the text together. 
Matthew chapter 17. It says this, after six days, Jesus took Peter with him, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from that cloud said this, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. And he said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Interesting here that Matthew actually records that Jesus takes his three compadres, those that are, these three guys are really close to him, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain, up the mountain. Now, as a first century Jew, you are reading this, and all of a sudden, all of the buttons on your dashboard are blinking, because if you're a good Bible reader, this idea of going up the mountain, what would it remind you of? As an ancient Jew... You would feel it deep in your bones when you heard that Jesus led them up the mountain because you would be thinking about their long-standing prophet, this guy named Moses, who went up the mountain, who climbed Mount Sinai and was in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of God. And you know the story, if you know it, it's here where God met Moses and he gave him the law. This is not by accident. Jesus is taking his three closest disciples, his three closest friends, and Matthew wants us to feel it deep in our veins. This is not a mistake. They go up the mountain, and this is a sign pointing all the way back to the Exodus story. It actually says here, it's kind of a weird word for us, that he was transfigured. Transfiguration Sunday. Not a word that we often use. The Greek word here is the word metamorpho, or what would be also known as metamorphosis. You've probably heard of this. It simply means transformation. Like a caterpillar turning to a butterfly. This is kind of the image we get. And by the way, this is actually the image that the Bible gives of you and me. If you are a follower of Jesus, metamorpho or metamorphosis, transformation is actually the call for those that follow Jesus, being transformed. This is the, actually the word picture, the mind picture that we're getting here. And this is what's happening to Jesus. What is happening here? You ever, ever read through this? Because a lot of us, again, grow up in lower church, we, lower church environments. I think most of our churches kind of neglected to teach on this because it's kind of a little weird, right? Jesus on the mountain, there's something happening. The word transfigure is used. What's happening here? 
I think what we're seeing here is that these disciples are getting a glimpse of the glorified Jesus. They are seeing what Jesus is going to be through his glorifying work of death and burial and resurrection. They're seeing here on this mountain, just like Moses met with Yahweh, they are seeing now Jesus, the Christ child who's grown up as we've been celebrating these stories week after week in epiphany of God coming to us. Now they're seeing him in all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his splendor. Because here's the story. We have to actually talk about this for this to make sense. Jesus was your average, ordinary dude in appearance. You know this? The prophet Isaiah actually prophesies hundreds of years earlier, and he talks about the Messiah coming, and this is what he says. He says, the Messiah will come. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that would make us desire him. He was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Crazy. Like legit, what the prophet is saying here is that there was nothing, there was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that would have blown our minds. Nothing about his appearance would have drawn us to him. It's actually fascinating. A few years ago, I don't know if you saw this, but they're on social media. Somebody had picture, posted a picture of what they thought Jesus probably would have looked like in his context in the day in the Middle East. You know what that picture was of? Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden. And it was just interesting to watch the American audience kind of respond to this because Jesus was not your average looking white dude. And yes, there was even a Fox News host during that time that declared Jesus was a white guy, which I digress, that's for another teaching, another, another moment in time. But a lot of Americans had a hard time reconciling this. The reality is, is that Jesus in appearance looked more probably like Osama bin Laden than he did Matt Damon. And in his day, as he walked the dusty hills of Palestine, he in appearance was your average dude. But now these disciples are on the mountain with him. The, Jesus coming is incarnate. He's, they're with him and they're seeing Jesus in his glory. Again, they're seeing what Jesus is going to be through his glorifying work of death, burial, and resurrection, him being glorified. And it's kind of mind-blowing that God came to us as a human, someone who empathizes with us, but right here we see Jesus in his glory. This is what the disciples are getting a picture of. Yes, Jesus was in appearance your average dude, but something is happening now here on the mountain. Then it gets a little weirder because these two guys named Moses and Elijah showed up. So if you thought it was weird, it gets even weirder. Welcome to the Bible. Anybody with me? You're just like, that's weird. And then it just continues to take another turn. Welcome, boys. Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus. And you've got to imagine Peter, James, and John watching this. Remember, we don't have too many figures in our frame as Canadians of people that would be like super influential like that. This, where they would show up and our whole entire worldview was kind of stuck on them. Now, it's interesting. Is this random that Moses and Elijah showed up? Well, maybe kind of, but honestly, if you know the Hebrew story, this is not random at all. Actually, nothing in the scripture is random. Something is happening here. If you don't know, Moses and Elijah very much represent the law and the prophets. If you know Moses, 
a lot of the law, the first five books of the Bible, were attributed to him as writing these first five books. And then obviously Elijah was known as the great prophet. And so here you have standing with Jesus on this mountain, Moses and Elijah, and the picture that any Jewish reader of this would get is this is the law and prophets. And one of the things Matthew wants us to see as we read this is that Jesus is the one, and he says it, but now it's in picture for us. Just imagine ourselves there with the disciples. Jesus wants us to see that he fulfills the law and prophets. That everything about them, everything about what we read in the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi, now Jesus is the one that embodies this and he fulfills it as Israel's true king. So Moses and Elijah are there, but this is not, this is not by mistake. They're there to show us in a really profound way that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He's the one that fulfills this. And then, of course, Peter. You get to Peter, who I empathize with Peter because we know if you read the scriptures, he kind of comes across a little bit like a tool, you know, so always has his foot in his mouth, the whole behind me Satan stuff, and just all the weird stuff in denying Jesus down the road. He gets up and he actually says this. As he sees all this unfolding, he says, it's good for us to be here. Right, Jesus? The human propensity, I'm sure, to make it all about us. Hey, Jesus, it's really good that I'm here to see this. Peter, in his mind, had an idea of building these tents that would be there for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And it's kind of hard to discern Peter's language here. Kind of sounds funny. You can feel the human tendency again to want to make it about us, but I also think that it's kind of funny because as Peter kind of petitions to make these tents, I think part of it is actually out of his purity of heart. When Peter experiences the glory of God and Moses and Elijah here on the mountain, I think the human tendency in him is, I don't want this to end. Let's build some tents. And let's have this amazing moment with God, like forever. Let's just build tents and live here. And here we are. And let's kind of have this euphoric moment forever. And it goes on. It says, when Peter was still speaking, then a bright cloud comes over them, uh, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And a voice from the cloud actually says to them, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And then the voice says this, listen to him. Listen to this one, because this is about Jesus. Fleming Rutledge, who's an Episcopalian priest, she's great, and she's really helped with some of just the imagination around epiphany in this season. She says this, the gospel of Matthew lives and breathes and pours out its summons. Its entire purpose is that we should see and believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and is the Son of God. She goes on and she suggests that as obvious as Scripture is trying to be with us as humans, we work very hard not to hear what it's trying to say. We're determined sometimes to have the Bible be about other things than what it's really about. She goes on and says this, most of us in the church have been so deeply affected by cultural trends that we don't realize how far we've drifted from the central message. The Bible is not a story of a search for God or a history of religious consciousness of the Hebrew people or a guide to human spiritual development. It's not an all-purpose resource for our needs in the uh, the usual sense, sorry. Everyone in the churches these days seems to be talking about his or her spiritual journey, but the foundational story of the Bible is not about our journey at all. 
It's about what Karl Barth calls the journey of the Son of God into the far country. What she's actually suggesting here is that the scriptures and what we're reading is fundamentally about God coming near to us. This is what epiphany is. It's the story of the incarnation. God taking on flesh and actually dwelling among us. As much as the Bible touches on all sorts of things, this is the central message. Jeff Seaton, he goes on and says this. He says, what happens on that mountain is an epiphany, a revelation of the true nature of reality. We think we live in a world we see and touch and taste and feel and hear. We think that's all there is. But on the mountaintop, Jesus says, no, it's not like that at all. God's with you. God's here with you right now. Every bit is real, no more real than what you call reality. And the caution is, is to look at what the, voice actually, what the voice of God actually says about Jesus. What does it say? Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus is the Messiah and King. This is, the, this is what the central theme of the, what this is trying to get us to see. And you can see how weird it becomes at times when we get away from that message. So, for example, give me, just for an example, give me a, like, all-time movie. Help me out. Give me, like, one of the greatest, and not Mr. Deeds, though that's, like, my number one movie of all time. You're like, what? I'm a pretty shallow movie watcher. I'm sorry. Give me a great all-time movie. Shawshank Redemption. Very good. Okay, what's the central theme of Shawshank Redemption? Freedom. Okay, there you go. Now, it would, be, it would be awfully weird to watch Shawshank Redemption and think, I think this is really going to help me have better relationships. You know, this is going to make me a better parent, right, or whatever. And listen, I, I certainly believe that the way of Jesus helps our relationships and even helps me as a parent. But that's just not the central theme. And it's just as weird doing that with Shawshank Redemption as what we do with the scriptures. What's trying to come across here is that Jesus is the king and Messiah. This is the whole thing. And then what we tend to do in the West is like, well, how can I have a better life? And how can I be a better parent? I know there's all sorts of different needs that we come even to a gathering like this with. I'm just telling you, that's not the central focus of this. The voice of God in this moment says, listen to him, listen to Jesus. And this is why we are obsessed with listening to the words of Jesus. This is why the last number of years, we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount like two or three times. Because when Yahweh says, listen to him, Jesus now is the embodiment of what God looks like. We listen to his words. We look to the scriptures. We listen to the spirit which leads us to become more like Jesus. And I just think we need to lean into this idea that this is the central theme of the whole thing. And I get it as busy Westerners. We want to like twist it and make it about us. But this is not what it's about. Then it goes on. And when they, it, the, the, it, the imagery is very vivid here. So they hear the voice coming from the cloud, which I believe is the voice of God. It says, listen to him, listen to Jesus. And it's, it's interesting. It says, when the disciples actually heard this, they heard this voice, they fell face down and were, they were terrified. Just interesting, the response to God's glory. When they see God's glory in Jesus, in this transfiguration, and they hear, their, they hear God's voice, what's the, what's the reaction 
They're afraid. It's interesting because I know this isn't super popular, but in our progressive moment, we often want to explain away the fear of God. Do you ever hear people do this? Well, it's not really fear. We shouldn't really be afraid. It's kind of a metaphor. You know, everything's a metaphor or whatever. We do this, don't we? But it's also interesting that every time humans encounter God with either God's presence or they hear his voice or they encounter messengers or angels in the scripture, what are they? They're freaked out of their mind. They're afraid. And I know this is an interesting conversation, but I actually think fear, in essence, can be a good and healthy thing, right? Like fear keeps me away from walking off that cliff or driving through the red light or living in a tent in the, on my own in the Australian outback. Anybody with me? Like there's de- deadly stuff there. Fear does something within me to protect me. And I actually think, and again, I know this is not super popular, but I think a healthy level of fear in people is actually a healthy thing. So for example, and you can totally disagree with this, I'm learning as a parent, but I actually think a healthy level of fear in my children towards both Heather and myself as parents and the ones who hold authority over their lives in this time and space I actually believe that that's a healthy thing. I also hope that there would be a healthy level of fear with my kids when it comes to you guys as adults, right? So we're in community together and we have so many great friends, but I would also hope in them that there'd be, again, a healthy level of fear to authority figures to teach. We all know what people, what kids can be like if they don't hold this type of fear to the people around them. And I think with the health, and some of you are teachers and you're like, heck yes, I know exactly what that looks like. So I think actually with a healthy sense of fear comes respect, which is so important. And so here we are as humans in a very interesting moment in our day where we're autonomous. We're completely autonomous. There's little emphasis in our culture on authority. The emphasis is on freedom. And if we're honest, we're really not afraid of anybody. We're Western democratic people, right? We're not afraid of anybody. And we're certainly not afraid of God. He kind of just fits into our lives. God's more like now in the Western sense, more like a buddy than a being that holds any sense of authority. And yet, Jesus' closest friends hear his voice, they see what's going on, and they fall down on their faces. That's the automatic reaction is to their face. Now, I know we can argue here that Peter and his homies saw and heard God audibly. And I think if you were to argue with me, I've never heard or, or seen God like physically audibly. But we have to wrestle through the reality that the, this revelation of God in their own lives put them on their faces. They worship Jesus and they glor- the, the automatic response is to glorify him when they see his glory. And I would just imagine, and I've just been doing a kind of an audit of my own life, I would imagine that some of us haven't had an on-our-face moment, right? I mean, we're Canadian. We're quiet. We're polite, eh? (laughs) Right? We're polite people. This is how we're known around the world. There's not a lot that gets to our emotions as Canadian, eh? Right? Oh, unless you, unless, unless you go to a hockey game and then some of you are nuts or you go to a hip concert, God bless you, Gord, then you're out of your seat, It's interesting that they saw 
a revelation of Jesus, and it brought them to their faces. One of the questions I just think is, is like, am I afraid of God? Like in the best sense. In my autonomous, do whatever I want with my life kind of world. Do I actually fear him? Would my response be to my face like these disciples? But what's crazy is the next step, the, the step, I don't think this is a formula or a step, but the next thing that happens is Jesus sees them on their faces and it says that Jesus came and touched them. And what does he say? Get up. What does he say to them? Don't be afraid. And when they got up, all they could see was Jesus on his own. Moses and Elijah, not there. Their fear of God actually led to a posture of worship. But it's interesting, they don't stay there. There's reverence, there's awe, there's fear. It brings them to their face. But then Jesus lovingly and graciously, as he always does, comes alongside them. And I even love the detail of he comes alongside them and he touches them. He tells them to get up and that they're not to be afraid. Because epiphany, and when we have an epiphany of Jesus in our lives, it leads disciples to get up and to follow him. And so on Transfiguration Sunday, I think the wrestling inside of us is kind of this, and I don't want to be confusing by any means. You know, I don't think teachers should get up and try and confuse you, but I've been wrestling through this for the last number of days and the experience that the disciples had here and what it means for us, and I, I've just been thinking this. We should be afraid and don't be afraid. What? It's kind of odd, isn't it? This is, this is messing me up, and I'm, it's coming out of my own mouth. I think we need to be afraid. I think actually some of us need to garner in our lives a healthy fear of God and his presence more than just a buddy, buddy, but actually reverence and fear. And then at the same time, I think Jesus comes along and says, don't be afraid. And I think we need to live somewhat, not even necessarily in the tension of that, but we should live in the fear of God and then not be afraid. And this is what an encounter with God, I think this is something that it does within us. This is what an epiphany does for us. Fear God with your life. Because I think fearing God with our lives brings this type of transformation and following his way. And then I think Jesus would come alongside of us this morning and he'd tell us to get off the ground and not to fear him because we are with him and he is with us. You know what I'm saying? So be afraid, but don't be afraid. And as we come to the tables here, may we be reminded that Jesus is no longer this peasant Galilean on the dusty hills of Palestine. He's glorified. And the kind of life that he's actually calling us into, I don't know if you know this, but the, actually the telos, the end of the story, is that we too will be glorified. A lot of Christians don't understand that the telos of the story is resurrection, is new glorified bodies in a completely undone, remade, re renewed world. The story is amazing. What happened to Jesus as our prototype will happen to us? I just call you, be afraid, fear God, but don't be afraid.